Sound is, as we know that phrase, the 50% of the process, but there is always the director's vision about how they play into and how the balance of that is really going to be. I think George Lucas took it to another level when, um, you know, in Star Wars and changed the whole sound community. Alfred Hitchcock, to me, was a master at using sound in his movies. Um, the use of silence and space in between sound. And that was part of the thing in terms of coming up with that language that the sound team and the director can communicate that they're on the same page. You come up with a language that you understand, you need less communication because there's an understanding of how that person sees art, sees uh, the storytelling, sees this and sees that. And so consequently, that means you can do more work, the less you have to explain, right? So familiarity is really, really important <laughs> in, in these sort of things, you know, and, and coming up with an understanding so that when everything comes up to that final time, when it's ready to listen to everything together, there's a comfort factor that there was an understanding Oh, yeah, you covered this. We did that. Welcome to the Sound and Marketing Podcast. This week on Sound and Marketing, we conclude our conversation with Steve Williams, former VP of Post-Production Services at Universal. We always battled in the, the sound stages, the sound studios, the mixing facilities, because the challenge was also always with the creative. The director who wanted it to be louder than anybody else. And the conversation from uh, those who controlled that to say and to convince them that this was as loud as it could be and it's going to be fine and the better way to make it was to control the dynamic range, which was to make the silent more apparent. So that loud had a meaning as opposed to everything being loud. Those are the kind of things to, that are part of your skill set of understanding the psychoacoustics of it. They weren't always successful. A lot of times you, you kind of had to do what you could do. One of the things in sound for, for picture is that you always have that mastering process <laughs> after you mix to, to have a second chance to control your overall levels. And understanding the format that it's getting released on, which, you know, when it was released on 35 millimeter film and you had a 35 millimeter soundtrack, if you exceeded levels, it would let you know right away <laughs> that this doesn't play back yeah. and you get, you know, it would just crap out right away and stuff like that. And then in the digital process, when they started delivering digital soundtracks, you know, um, it became the same thing. You know, you had to, there was another thing people had to get comfortable with to do that. Now um, you have these Blu-ray soundtracks are, are just absolutely incredible. So they have a lot of dynamic range. They're kind of representative of an original um, track that was delivered for the product. Uh, you have to really be uh, clear about that, you know, in terms of delivering it, knowing that it's going to play in all those different places. So the, the technology is the advanced tools that allow you to have a better idea of what your product is going to sound like um, in the final, in somebody else's place. There's always, television playbacks always happened on a home theater system. 
so that you could get an idea of what it would sound like. And in, in theatrical, uh, a lot of times we would go to other theaters to play back something just to have an idea that we were in the right range for it. I think also uh, people have a fear of silence of sorts. And I think that's part of um, like people like you, your specialty is knowing when it doesn't have to be huge, but, but drawing the right sounds out at the right time. Um, I heard something like, for Michael Bay movies, like for Transformers, when it gets all crazy and you hear the the robots transforming and stuff, the way that they did this, uh, this is what I heard, was that it sounds like it's huge and it's all the sounds, but really they dropped everything out except for the Transformer sounds. So like if you listen to it, it doesn't have everything in it, but it has what is necessary in there. And I'm sure Michael Bay was sitting there going, no, more sound, more sound. Well, this is a, that's an interesting thing because the elements of a track are really uh, understanding what they contribute to it. Obviously being music and a score um, having um, a really, probably the, one of the most important parts of it um, is your score, which comes from the composer, and then um, all the sound elements that attach to that image. And in case Transformers, where those images were all created digitally, uh, they didn't have sound. So you really had to create sounds that people believed were always a part of that image. But then you also had the sound design elements mm -hmm. that went along with that, you know, um, because you had weapons, you had things that were happening that needed to go beyond just a normal sound. So one of the things is that, um, and this was always the, the challenge when you got all these elements together in the same place and you started mixing them, they were always overprepared. And that's just a natural sort of thing, right? That that you're you're doing that, and and uh, a lot of people don't understand in feature films, and and even now more so than ever in television too. Um, you have to what we call pre-dub and prepare these elements to be put in categories and in smaller things, so that when you do mix you can control colors and different elements to, at different times because a lot of times you're not hearing the composer's final music and um, you need to really figure out the importance of what comes. It isn't always the music, but a lot of times it is the music and especially in action movies, the music drives a, a lot of that. So when you have a, a rare scene where, you know what, Somebody says, you know what, we're going to pull the music out here and we're just going to let it breathe here and let it, sometimes you can have a much more intense experience. Saving Private Ryan. Yes, by doing that, right? The the, the scene on the beach, like I can't remember yes. how much time passes. It's like 10 minutes where all you hear is like the pinging of the bullets and the- The opening reel, that's oh, right. Mm -hmm. Man, mm -hmm. that's powerful and- that's the lack of sound made it powerful. So it was like very smart of somebody to pull all of that out. You really became uh, a huge part of that experience when you watched yeah, it. Yeah, that was definitely the uh, a prime example of getting in, into your character's head. Mm -hmm. That really allowed that to happen. It was the opening reel. It was, it was stunning. 
It was just really stunning. And, and, and another movie, I think, um, was 1917. Oh, yes. Oh, this, my God. This year, which was really a fantastic movie. Yes. Sound played such an important role in that film. But there was a lot, of, uh, there were many moments in that where you were just in with your character. The environment around it was speaking to you as it went from, they transversed across the country to try to do that, which, you know, and it had a private Ryan theme, kind of, yeah. right? They were, <laughs> they were going to find someone, right. right, to bring them back and save them and stuff like that on the front and stuff. So uh, it, it, was, it was really kind of interesting. But I think this is one of the things that I think that is really important in the sound process, is the level of communication and how you talk about what's important, right? Sound is... Um, as we know that phrase, the 50% of the process, um, but there is always the director's vision about how they play into and how the balance of that is really going to be. And um, I think George Lucas was really took it to another level when um you know in star wars and changed the whole sound community yeah. but I, but i think there were some great directors alfred hitchcock to me was a master at using sound in his movies um and and um the use of silence and space in between sound was just really really fantastic i um and that was part of the thing in terms of you know how does how does one um well the, the, let me not jump there first. Let me jump and just continue on the communication side of it was coming up with that language that the sound team and the director can communicate that they're on the same page. You see a, a lot of directors and the crews being the same from film to film, specifically because of this, because once you establish and you, you come up with a language that you understand you need less communication because there's an understanding of how that person sees art, sees uh, the storytelling, sees this and sees that. And so consequently, that means you can do more work, the less you have to explain, right? So familiarity is really, really important <laughs> in, in these sort of things, you know, and, and coming up with an understanding so that when everything comes up to that final time, when it's, ready to listen to everything together there's a comfort factor that there was an understanding oh yeah you covered this we did that not that there there's spotting sessions there are um all those sort of things where notes go across but i think it's uh it's um saves an awful lot of time i mean there's some really great it does and 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 there's some great relationships that have existed um, John Williams in this, and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> well, definitely from a composer standpoint, absolutely. You know, uh, but I think all, uh, Walter Murch and Francis Coppola. Mm. You know, uh, Lee Smith and uh, Peter Weir, um, and uh, Lee Smith and, and um, uh, Christopher Nolan. You know, Lee, Lee Smith and um, Walter Murch. If I can just mention their names, were rare because they were picture editors and sound editors on all on their most of their movies i think lee smith is probably doing less of that he's because the movies are so big but walter that's what he did you know he he cut the picture and then did the sound too which is really interesting makes for a lot more cohesion if you have the time 
to do both of those crafts at the same time. Uh, most films don't have that opportunity to do that. You know, you really need to, everybody to be working separately on it. But I think the issue of communication then just is, is much better. I mean, what Apocalypse Now is just, um, you know, just stands on its own. I, I, it's one of my favorite movies still to this day. And there's a lot of, everybody always asks about, about your favorite movie, but I, I can never answer the question. You know, it changes every day. <laughs> it's really so, so good. But um, I, I think in your particular field where you're talking about selling product, you're talking about, I, I was looking recently at the new campaign for the Ford Bronco, and um, which was a huge thing for uh, Ford to come back and bring out this iconic vehicle creating a whole nother sense of, because I think it was 20, 25 years, it had been off the market. So it had to reestablish what this vehicle meant, right? And, uh, and listening and watching their, their commercials. It's, it's interesting to dissect because they were really trying to uh, put this whole outdoors kind of adventure or kind of risky kind of thing. And, and there were elements in the sound, right? That were aggressive, right? There were, uh, you know, power, all these sort of things uh, to be able to speak to the, what demographic do you think that they were going for? Yeah. <laughs> well, recently Honda changed their, um, their, voiceover because it was fred savage and they changed it to john cena and i think it was because they wanted that more like aggressive uh sound i guess yes so that's what i'm saying going back to your thing about the voice how people react to it and what it says i think those are all in play in terms of your effectiveness and how you can sell your product right um the matthew mcconaughey you know, for Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's really a big one, I think. And it's interesting how that they're starting to shift his tone on the commercials. It used to be a little bit more of uh, not playful, but a little bit quirkier and stuff like that. It's not, it's a little bit more serious or not, you that's know, true, yeah. not serious, sir, but serious, a little bit more, you know, less abstract. Uh, Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think they that's gave him good. script this time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's really, it's really kind of funny and stuff. But when I was, uh, when I was a sound editor and a sound mixer, um, and I recorded a lot of voiceover work for animation and, and uh, also for, uh, for marketing, the voiceover artists are such important element. Oh my goodness. They were superstars. Nobody knew them at all. Everybody just knew their voices. Right. And, uh, but there were only like four or five of them that really had all the work. And it was because of that particular reason is that the sound of their voices um, said so much and gave so much credibility, right. To the product. So um, it's sort of like the Vin Scully effect, you know, I looked up uh, the Animaniacs because my kids are into Animaniacs now and there's a new one coming out, which we're excited about, but um, looked up on IMDb, the three main characters on Animaniacs. Yes. Yes. And each one of them have done hundreds of different shows. I mean, it was incredible. (laughs) Yes. Well, that was the thing about it, you know, was, was the fact that uh, the really great voiceover artists have multiple characters and multiple voices that they could do. So, um, but 
the, the product voiceover artists only have their voice. And that's what they're known for, period. Right. Whereas the animation was different. I, I worked in animation and, and mixed in animation. That's fact. That was one of the first places when I was um, my pathway to be a re-recording mixer. Uh, we mixed a lot of the Marvel animation. The In fact, I was working with Jim Henson on Jim Henson um, products, Muppet Babies and Fraggle Rock. And, oh, yeah. you know, those it was it was great. Uh, there was a lot of fun people don't understand that animation is probably one of the most difficult parts of the sound editing. It is a drawn medium, right? So putting in in, uh, sound effects and things to it to bring it to life is incredibly intense. There are more sound effects per minute on an animation film than live action could ever be, Mm -hmm. right? Because live action, you could at least, you have air, You have natural elements that are a part of it, right? So you don't have to fill that up. But, you know, where you just have uh, images, uh, drawn images on a screen, you need to fill that all in, right? right? And so it's quite an element. I mean, it's quite a, and now with gaming, it's even more of a thing, you know, so. Gaming is just insane. (laughs) Gaming is, gaming is insane. It really is. (laughs) And now that you have motion capture and, and um, you can create uh, cinematic kind of elements that go inside these games. It's just reality, AR, AI, like it's ridiculous. In in fact, this is going to come back to a point you made earlier, right? About this technology, about what's happening with it is the fact that what happened with gaming and the, the drive for artificial intelligence to um, uh, engines, right, to create images, jump to John Favreau now and Jungle Book, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And you see that ultimately what was happening there was one or two actors in a warehouse in downtown Los Angeles creating a full movie that looked realistic right? You had animated characters that moved and had characters. And then you have The Mandalorian, which is another one that John Favreau did, uh, that was done in a small studio. That engine that came from the gaming, I can't remember the name of it. There was a particular, yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Are creating these things. The Mandalorian just looked absolutely amazing. And you had 3D wraparound images now right? And backgrounds and worlds that you were creating uh, that are unbelievable. So in the time of COVID, that technology now is getting spread out because as the crews get smaller and, and location and traveling, and, and you, you're going to need a way to really generate these spaces and these visuals. And it's happening. It, it really is amazing. You know, so I think um, it's, it's funny how something comes up right, technology-wise, and takes over and allows people to still extend the creative vision. And I think that's a great place to wrap it up because I, I agree. I think that I'm, I'm an internal optimist. I believe good will come from what's happening right now. And uh, I think that our abilities to think outside the box are growing and growing exponentially. And this is giving us an opportunity to come up with something amazing in all fields. That's my opinion. No, no, absolutely. I agree with you. I agree with you. It's always how we 
um, respond mm -hmm. in those situations. I think sound is, a, is an amazing field and it's the imagination that ultimately is your limit, right? If you can have a, an imagination um, that is wide open and you can manipulate those tools to do that, some incredible, enjoyable experiences are going to come out of it. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. I could go on and on, but... Uh... <laughs> I, I just wanted to say is that there is there are two things. One, there was a film that came out um, at the beginning of this year. It finally got released. It's called Making Waves. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, it was written by... Babette Buster, directed by Mitch Costin. Mitch Costin um, is uh, the chair, the K. Rose Professor in the Art of Sound at UC, USC School of Cinema, right? She is um, uh, pretty amazing. She, this is, I think it was her first directing piece, but it is the definitive movie that has come out on how sound relates to film and visual medium. It is the definitive Thing. And if anybody is interested in sound, especially when it comes to um, uh, feature films and the history of sound, please watch Making Waves. And I know it's available. Um, there are probably over 250 interviews, um, great directors, um, sound supervisors, everybody. It, it outlays the whole process of sound and how it is important from the very beginning to the end. Oh my goodness. There's really been nothing like it. It is fantastic. So making waves, okay? I'm definitely checking that out. Thank you for the recommendation. May, so maybe, you could, yeah, maybe you could put that as a link in, yeah, to people and stuff like that. For sure, for sure. Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate your time. It's always good seeing you and uh, say hello to your wonderful husband for me. Okay? I will do so. Tune in next week for part one of a conversation with Arafel Bizan, co-lead to the Neurolab at Mindshare. I am very excited to announce my upcoming course, Sounds, Power, and Influence in Marketing, launching February 2021. Pre-order is available now. We'll be discussing what sound is and where it came from, the origins of advertising, advertising today and predictions for the future, sound's role in decision-making and buying power, and how our brains process sounds to create choice and reaction. Get early bird pricing at soundinmarketing.com. Prices go up February 1st, so don't delay. Head on over today. For inquiries on sonic branding development or consultations, you can find me at Dreamer Productions. That's D-R-E-A-M-R productions.com, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can also email me at Gina, J-E-A-N-N-A, at dreamerproductions.com. All links will be provided in the show notes. For more of the Sound and Marketing Podcast, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher. This episode was produced by Dreamer Productions and hosted, written, and edited by me, Gina Isham. Let's make this world of sound more intriguing, more unique, and more and more on brand.